Well, we're going to continue our series through Exodus today. And in this series, we're seeing how God is drawing his people out of slavery and drawing them in to worship. They were having to build stuff for Pharaoh. God is going to rescue them and invite them to build a tabernacle so that he can live with them and they can worship. So we're continuing that story today. And God sends this man named Moses to the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh is stubborn and refuses to let the people go. And Pharaoh's stubbornness becomes a stage for God to display his power and glory to the whole world, not just to the Egyptians, but to the nations, so that all could come to see who this God is. Pharaoh arrogantly mocked God and said, who is the Lord? Who is this God that you claim to worship? Who is this God who says that I need to let my slave labor go? Who is this God? God is answering his question through 10 plagues. The first nine we looked at last week. Today, we're going to look at the final plague, the 10th plague. And this passage today, Exodus chapter 11 and 12, maybe more than any other passage in the Bible helps us see who our God is. So let's look at it. Exodus chapter 11 is where we'll start. This is on page 55 uh, in the Bible that's in the seat there. If you don't have a Bible and want to follow along, Exodus chapter 11. The Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you out of here. Now announce to the people that both men and women should ask their neighbors for silver and gold items. The Lord gave the people favor with the Egyptians. In addition, Moses himself was very highly regarded in the land of Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and the people. So something interesting is happening here. God says, this is going to be the last plague. And he says, you need to go and have the Israelites ask the Egyptians to give them gold and silver. And the Egyptians are going to go for it. They're actually going to do it. And the reason is because they have started to revere, to respect the Israelites. And they've started to respect Moses. It says Moses himself was very highly regarded in the land of Egypt. They're starting to respect these people that they've looked down on for centuries. Why? Because they've begun to see the power of their God. They've witnessed nine plagues now and they've, be, they've begun to see what God is like. And so now they have this, this reverent respect for these people and for Moses. And so here comes the last plague, verse four. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, 
I will go throughout Egypt and every firstborn male in the land of Egypt will die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne to the firstborn of the servant girl who is at the grindstones, as well as every firstborn of the livestock. Verse six, there will be a great cry of anguish through all the land of Egypt, such as never was before or ever will be again. But against all the Israelites, whether people or animals, not even a dog will snarl so that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come down to me and bow before me saying, get out you and all your people who follow you. After that, I will get out. And he went out from, the, from Pharaoh's presence, fiercely angry. Verse nine, the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go out of his land. These last two verses, verses nine and 10, summarize what has happened in the plagues. God has been demonstrating time and time again that he is greater than Pharaoh, that he and his word need to be obeyed more than Pharaoh and Pharaoh's words. And yet Pharaoh refuses to listen. And so God is going to send a final plague, the 10th plague. And after this plague, he'll listen. The plague is that every firstborn male in the land of Egypt is going to die. Every firstborn in the land of Egypt is going to die, but God is going to protect his people, the Israelites. He's going to make a distinction just as he's done in the previous plagues between the Egyptians and the Israelites. The Egyptians will have a firstborn die. The Israelites won't. And after this, they'll go out. So let's be clear what this is saying. God is saying that he himself is going to go through the land of Egypt and strike the firstborn dead. If you are the firstborn and if you are not old enough to have a family of your own yet, that would give you your own firstborn, you will die. And God is the one who will strike you dead. That is the 10th plague. God even refers to himself as the destroyer in chapter 12, verse 23. Is this an injustice? Is God responsible for evil here? 
What is he doing? He's going to go throughout the land and every single firstborn is going to be dead. And he himself is going to be the one who's doing it. What in the world? This passage is maybe one of the most challenging in the book of Exodus to wrap our minds around. Is God a God of justice or not? There are two important things that we need to say and that we need to see in the text in in order to think through that. First, God is the judge, not us. God is the judge, not us. An action is right or wrong based on what God says. If God says something is right, it's right. Justice is not a category that exists outside of God that God has to submit himself to. Justice exists because God exists. The fact that it's in us to say, wait a minute, some things just are not right. The the only reason we can even do that is because there is a just God who exists. So God does not have to submit to some kind of standard outside of himself. God is the one who designs the standards. The standards actually flow out of the character of God. So we creatures do not get to say to God, you have to answer for what you've done. We must answer to God. God does not have to answer to us. God is demonstrating throughout all of the plagues and then it culminates in this 10th one that he and he alone has authority over life and death. He's the one who gives life in the first place and he can take it away. And in this instance, He's going to judge the Egyptians by taking it away from their firstborns. The firstborn male would have been the one who would carry on the honor and the legacy of the family. And so God is judging them by taking the life of the firstborn. So that's the first thing that we need to say is that Ultimately, God gets to decide what's right and wrong. God is the judge, not us. But here's the second thing. We need to remember that the Egyptians are not an innocent people who are being treated unjustly here. The Egyptians are a guilty people who deserve judgment. What's happening in this passage is justice, not injustice. The Egyptians enslaved and oppressed the Israelites for 400 years. The Egyptians murdered not just the firstborn, but all of the sons of the Israelites for an entire generation. The Egyptians have mocked this God and they have stubbornly refused to listen to his warnings 
and his pleads to let the people go. This is not an innocent people who God is raining down his judgment on. This is a guilty people. God is executing justice on behalf of the oppressed in this text. God is infinitely good, holy, and just. And this passage is helping us see that. That that God, because he's just, is angered and takes action towards sinners. That's what it means for God to be just. If you want a God who's just, that means you you want a God who is angry and takes action at sin. You want to know what injustice looks like? Injustice is when an authority figure finds out that some type of wrong is being done to people who can't help themselves. And rather than step in and do something, rather than be angered and take action, instead, the authority says, yeah, but we'll just let him go. Yeah, but it's not that big of a deal. Yeah, but... And maybe this is some of your story. Maybe someone hurt you, wronged you in some way, and when the authority who was supposed to protect you found out, They did nothing. That is not injustice. I'm sorry, that is not justice. That is an injustice. God is a just God, and that means that he gets angry and takes action towards sinners. So the question is really not, is God unjust for striking the Egyptians? I think a better question would be, is God unjust for sparing the Israelites? Is God unjust for sparing the Israelites? On what basis does God make a distinction between the Israelites and the Egyptians? Why let the Israelites off the hook? Is it because of how righteous they are? They're just so much more righteous than the Egyptians. They would never oppress people and ignore the poor in their midst. Just keep reading the story. Literally, they'll do some of the exact same things to others that the Egyptians have done to them. It's not because they're better than the Egyptians. Is it because, and this is what some liberation theologians will say, is it because God just always takes the side of the oppressed? Well, in one sense, yeah, that's true that that God is always close to the brokenhearted. But in another sense, no, that's not true. He's not just simply saving the Israelites because they're oppressed. They're an oppressed people, as if 
That's what he has to do for oppressed peoples. And here's how we know that. A couple things. First, God is going to save Moses from this 10th and final plague. And Moses is hardly someone who's been oppressed. Moses grew up in the palace with power and privilege. He did not grow up being oppressed. But also notice this in chapter 11, verse 5. Every firstborn male in the land of Egypt will die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn of the servant girl who is at the grindstones. There were other people groups enslaved in Egypt, not just the Israelites. And God says, even those people's firstborn will die. So if God is simply standing up for the oppressed here, if, if being someone who's oppressed is the way that you get to escape God's judgment, then what about that person? So it can't just be that the Israelites are more righteous and it can't just be that the Israelites are an oppressed people group. So what is the basis for God saving the Israelites? Why will God save them? What this passage is going to teach us is that God saves his people from death by the blood of a lamb. God saves his people from death by the blood of a lamb. Let's look at the text. Look at Exodus chapter 12, verse 21. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, go, select an animal from the flock according to your families and slaughter the Passover animal. Take a cluster of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin and brush the lintel and two doorposts with some of the blood in the basin. None of you may go out the door of his house until morning. When the Lord passes through to strike Egypt and sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, he will pass over the door and not let the destroyer enter your houses to strike you. Notice in the text, that the Israelites are not even to go outside of their house. Why? Because the only firstborns who will be saved are those who are under the shelter of the blood of a lamb. If you go outside of this shelter, then when the destroyer comes, he will not pass over you. He only passes over those who are under the shelter of the blood of a lamb. Why do the Israelites need to be saved by the blood of a lamb? And here's why. Because if God is coming down to judge sinners... He can't just pass over the Israelites. The Israelites are also sinners. 
the moment that you cry out for God to come and judge the unjust, the moment that you call out for God to come and stop evildoers, you're calling judgment down upon yourself. You're saying, God, come and stop evildoers. Come and rid the world of evil. That prayer assumes that God has to get rid of you. One theologian says it like this in his book, Simply Christian. He says, the line between justice and injustice, between things being right and things not being right, cannot be drawn between us and them. It runs right down through the middle of each one of us. We all know what we ought to do, give or take a few details, but we all manage, at least some of the time, not to do it. If God is going to judge evildoers. He's got to judge us. So what's significant about the blood of a lamb? In the Old Testament, blood is a symbol of life. God is going to require the death of the firstborn in this plague That means that the debt that is owed, metaphorically speaking, from a family is the life of their firstborn. Because they have sinned, they owe a life. The way the New Testament will say this is the wages of sin is death. God, in his justice, is demanding payment for sin. The payment that must be made is a life. But God, in his grace, is allowing a substitute to pay for his people. The animal, the lamb, is symbolically dying in the firstborn's place. The blood represents the life that is owed. Theologians, the theological term for this is substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. Atonement just means to cover someone's debt, to to cover over a debt. The substitution comes because our debt is covered by something dying for them in their place. It's an atonement. Something needs to cover their sin. It's substitutionary because something is going to die for them in their place. So the blood of the lamb is a very powerful symbol of God's justice and grace. It's a symbol of his justice because someone has to pay. It's a symbol of his grace because someone or something can pay it for you. Look at Exodus 12, verse 13. the blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, 
I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The blood is the distinguishing mark. On what basis will God pass over the Israelites and judge the Egyptians? On the basis of the blood being on the door. D.A. Carson, who's a theologian and a writer, tells a story where he imagines what it would have been like the night that this was going to take place. And he talks about two neighbors who are discussing this. The first neighbor is watching his firstborn son play in their little front courtyard thing. And he's just speaking with such confidence, knowing that this son is going to be protected because he's got the blood already painted up on the doorpost. But the second neighbor is much more nervous. He's looking at his firstborn son. He's moved with love for him. And even though he's got this blood up, it seems like, is that really going to work? The first guy goes to bed, sleeps soundly. The second guy doesn't sleep at all in fear for his firstborn. And then D.A. Carson asks, which one of the neighbors lost their firstborn? Which of the two neighbors had their firstborn saved? And the answer is both of them. Both of them were saved. Because the distinguishing mark is not the strength of the faith of the person who's painting up the blood. The distinguishing mark is the object that they are placing their faith in. They are choosing to trust that God will keep his word. God has said that this blood will protect us. And so both of them were saved. If, if they trusted God's word and put up the blood. It doesn't matter how strong their faith was. What matters is what their faith is in. And so let's be as clear as we can be. This night, every house in Egypt, there would either be a dead son or a dead lamb. God saves his people by the death of a lamb. When justice comes down, it will either fall on your family or you will take security under the blood of a lamb. Through this event, God is going to lead the people out of slavery in Egypt. Look at chapter 12, verse 29. 
Now at midnight, the Lord struck every firstborn male in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and every firstborn of the livestock. During the night, Pharaoh got up, he along with all his officials and all the Egyptians, and there was a loud wailing throughout Egypt because there wasn't a house without someone dead. He summoned Moses and Aaron during the night and said, get out immediately from among my people, both you and the Israelites, and go, worship the Lord as you have said. Take even your flocks and your herds as you asked and leave and also bless me. Now the Egyptians pressured the people in order to send them out quickly out of the country for they said, we are all going to die. So the people took their dough before it was leavened with their kneading bowls wrapped up in their clothes on their shoulders. Verse 35. The Israelites acted on Moses' word and asked the Egyptians for silver and gold items and for clothing. And the Lord gave the people such favor with the Egyptians that they gave them what they requested. In this way, they plundered the Egyptians. Skip down to verse 38. A mixed crowd also went up with them along with a huge number of livestock, both flocks and herds. So it happens just as God has said. He comes through the firstborns without blood on their doorposts die. And then the people beg the Israelites to leave. Before they were refusing to let them go, now they're begging for them to go. But notice that a mixed crowd also went up with them. What does that mean? A mixed crowd refers to a diverse group ethnically. That is, people who are not Israelites leave with the Israelites. Why? If the only distinguishing mark between the Israelites and the Egyptians is their ethnicity, this doesn't make any sense. Why would a mixed group go with them when God leads the Israelites out? But if the distinguishing mark between God's people and those who are not his people, is whether or not they sought shelter under the blood of a lamb, then this verse makes perfect sense. God's heart has always been for the peoples of the earth, the nations of the earth. And so even as he rescues the Israelites, he's rescuing people who are not ethnically descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob but instead people who like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob placed their trust in the Lord. And so this group of people who comes out is a group of faith. God saves his people from death by the blood of a lamb. And then God commemorates this whole event with a meal. 
Look at Exodus chapter 12, verse 24. Keep this command permanently as a statute for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, you are to observe this ceremony, referring to this meal he's going to describe. When your children ask you, what does the ceremony mean to you? You are to reply, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. For he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and he spared our homes. So the people knelt low and worshiped. What's interesting is the the bulk of this text. I mean, this is the moment that the whole book has been leading to up to this point. And the bulk of this chapter is instructions about how to eat the meal later. After they get into the land where God's going to take them, they're supposed to have this meal to look back on what God's going to do. And so chapter 12, verses 1 through 20, is just an overview of how they're supposed to take the meal. It's just instructions for how to take the meal. And then these instructions pick back up in chapter 12, verse 43, and go all the way through chapter 13, verse 10. These are just the instructions that future generations were supposed to follow so that they could eat this meal called the Passover. This night when God saves those who have taken shelter under the blood of a lamb is going to become their independence day. It's the start of their nation and their nation's calendar. This is the birth of a new nation. And this is going to be their national holiday where for a week, they're going to eat unleavened bread to remember how they had to get out of there fast. And then During that week of unleavened bread, they're also going to celebrate the climax of it all, the Passover feast. And the purpose of that feast is two things. First, it's to remember what God did. It's so people can remember that God saved us by the blood of a lamb. And so uh, look at chapter 12, verse 14. This is to be a memorial for you. This supper is a memorial. It's it's something you do in remembrance of my salvation, God is telling them. And then look at chapter 13, verse 9. Let it serve as a sign for you on your head and as a reminder on your forehead so that the Lord's instruction may be in your mouth. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with a strong hand. This meal, the Passover, is intended to help them remember their salvation that God orchestrated. And it's also intended to help them explain their salvation. It's to help them remember and explain their salvation. Um, Look at chapter 12, verse 26 again. When you're doing all this weird stuff at the table, eating this meal, your kids are going to ask you, What does this ceremony mean to you? And if you've ever taken a Passover meal before, which you can still do, that's what kids ask. Hey, what is that? Hey, why are we doing that? Hey, why are we not eating yet? That's literally what happens. And that is intended to be a teaching moment. God has given them this meal, not only so they can remember, but also so they can explain, so they can teach 
Look at chapter 13, verse 8. On that day, explain to your son, this is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Why are we doing this meal this way? Why are we doing all of these things? Because this is what God has done for us. And it's interesting. As all of these instructions are being given about how to take the meal, verses 43 through 49 are specific instructions for foreigners. And basically the instructions are this. If somebody is not an Israelite, if they are not Jewish and they want to take this meal, they're not allowed to unless they're circumcised with their family. (laughs) Why is that significant? Why would they have to be circumcised before they could partake in the meal? Because circumcision is the sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. It's the thing that you do if you're, you're trying to tell your family and the world, we follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We have faith in the God of Abraham. That's what you do if you want to be part of the Israelite community. And so if you're going to remember the night that God saved his people by the blood of a lamb, then don't forget that you must place your faith in that God first. This meal is a meal that remembers a covenant. And it's a meal that remembers a rescue from Egypt by the blood of a lamb. So God saved his people from death by the blood of a lamb and he commemorates it with a meal. So here's the summary of this text, I think. In the Passover, God saves his people from death by the blood of a lamb and he helps them remember and explain their salvation with a symbolic meal. Now, with that in mind, think about how significant it was. The night over a thousand years later, Matthew chapter 26, verse 17. On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Go into the city to a certain man, he said, and tell him, the teacher says, my time is near. I am celebrating the Passover at your place with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. And so the disciples begin to get the Passover meal prepared. And then as they're going through the Passover meal, Jesus stands up from the table to preside over the meal, the way that a father would typically do in his house. And so Jesus is the person who's 
guiding you through all the steps of this symbolic meal. And there are certain things that as the uh, presider, I'll use that word, as the presider over this meal, there are certain things that Jesus would have said, that every presider would say. Normally you would pick up the bread and you would say, this bread is the bread of affliction that our fathers ate in Egypt. And it would be a way of helping you remember what God had done to save his people. And so imagine how shocked the disciples were when Jesus instead did this. Matthew 26 Verse 26, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it and broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup. And after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What is Jesus saying to his disciples? He's saying from now on, when you remember God's salvation, From now on, when you remember how God saved his people, you will not primarily remember what happened that night in Egypt. From now on, when you think back and you remember God's salvation for his people, you will think of me. Jesus is the true and better Passover lamb whose blood provides security for all who will trust in him. Jesus is the true and better Passover lamb whose blood provides security for all who will trust in him. Whether or not you are protected is not based on the strength of your faith, but the object of it. And so, this is why John the Baptist says to Jesus, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Are you overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Are you embarrassed because of how you've consistently fallen short? Are you guilty and afraid? because you know that you can't measure up? 
Are you exhausted from doing your best to make yourself presentable? Come take shelter under the blood of the Lamb. What was true for all the Israelites is also true for us. God saves his people by the death, saves his people from death by the blood of a lamb. And he helps them remember their salvation and explain their salvation with a symbolic meal. And that's what we're going to do together today. When you came in, hopefully you got one of these little packets. If you didn't, somebody can help you get one. But if you would begin to open that and we'll take this together in just a minute. But this is a meal that's intended to help us remember the salvation that God has worked. This bread is a symbol of Jesus's body. A body that he has because he left heaven, came to earth and took on flesh. In this body, Jesus did everything that the Israelites were supposed to do, that the Egyptians were supposed to do, and that you were supposed to do. Every standard that you need to meet, Jesus met in this body. This cup is a picture of his blood. Blood that was shed so that sinners like me and like you could take shelter from God's judgment. Jesus says this cup is the new covenant that is the new guarantee, the new promise that those who come to me, those who come to me will go free. As we eat this bread and drink this cup, what we're doing is we're reminding ourselves and the people around us that it's only by receiving what Jesus has done that we can be saved. And so the Apostle Paul writes, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you stand with me? I'm going to pray for you and then we're going to respond as we sing. Father, we praise you for being a God of justice. 
God, we also praise you for being a God of grace. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to live in our place and die on the cross in our place. God, we want to seek refuge under his blood. God, would you cause faith to rise up in people today? God, would we not arrogantly dismiss our sin or arrogantly think we can atone for it ourselves, but instead would we trust in you and what you've provided? God, would we be a church who always cherishes the grace and forgiveness that was accomplished in the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.